may be seated. Good morning. It's great to gather with you here this morning. If you are visiting or new, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. We are glad that you are here with us this morning as we come together and worship our God and King together this morning. If you are new and you'd like to learn more about the church or do you like to communicate anything to the church, there's a connect card in the seat in front of you. We would invite you to fill that out um, and give us any information, anything you want us to know, and you can drop those in the, the wooden boxes that are on the back wall on your way out this morning. Those boxes are also where regular tithes and offerings can go. This morning, as part of our worship service, we will um, celebrate communion together at the end of the service. So we'll talk more about that um, during the sermon. But on Sundays when we take communion together, we also collect a, a special benevolence offering. This is the offering we take to help meet needs of people in our community and needs of people in our church family. So it's kind of a, a separate, set-apart offering that focused on meeting tangible needs of people we um, care about. And so there will be someone at the door on your way out holding a tray. Right? And your benevolence offering can go in those trays on your way out. Regular offerings, like I said, can go in the wooden boxes, but the special benevolence offering can go in the trays on your way out this morning. A couple other announcements to bring to your attention. One is that following the service, downstairs, outside the door on the lower level, um, Bob Coach will be taking pictures. We seek to update our church directory. And so if you'd like to have an updated picture in the directory, you can stop by, see Bob after the service. We'll also have a copy of the current directory out there where you can check and make sure your information is all up to date and valid. And if you need to make corrections, you can do that in there as well. Again, it's good to be here to gather together with you to worship. And as we continue in the time of worship, would you join me in a time of prayer? Father God, we, we just thank you for this time to be together as people you have called to this place at this time. But I pray that you would be at work this morning in our hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would move in us and through us to bring glory to your name, that as we sing together, as we fellowship together, we hear your word together, that these things that take place here this morning would serve to Help us become more like Jesus. Help us to live lives that bring you honor and glory. Father, would you be praised, would you be glorified by all that takes place here this morning. Father, we pray for those in our church family who are dealing with 
difficult, hard situations. I pray that you would be at work, that you would bring comfort to those who need comfort, that you bring encouragement and perseverance to those who need comfort and perseverance, that you would be at work in the heart and mind of those who are hurting and suffering, that they would feel keenly your presence walking alongside them through their trials and suffering. Father, would we this morning leave here more in awe of what a great God you are? Would we leave here this morning more amazed by what an incredible Savior Jesus is. Would we leave here desiring all the more to live out our faith to go into our week? Pray to in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to sing a new song this morning. It's called Same God. Um, Malachi 3.6 it says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. This verse is talking is God talking to Israel, and he's reminding them that he's the same God who was the righteous judge and savior. And this this is something that reigns true for us today as well. So I'd like to encourage you as we sing this song, um, to just be reminded of ways that God has shown himself faithful to you in the past. Um, it's something I don't do enough, and it really, it really helps things to, to change your focus. So we're going to learn this together. I'm going to play and sing the chorus once for you to hear, and then I'm going to play it again, and you'll sing with me, and then we'll get into the song. So it goes like this. Oh God, my God, I need you.
Father, we, we praise you for you just saying the one who set us free. We praise you that death has no claim, no hold on us because of Christ and his death and resurrection. Death has been defeated. Death no longer has a hold on us. We look forward to the day when we live forever around your throne, bringing you honor and glory and praise. Until that day comes, let us live faithful lives, motivated by and in light of all that you've done for us in Jesus. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in, in 2015, Time Magazine ran, ran an article on their website, and it was called, it was titled, The Ten Richest People of All Time. And on the list of ten people, there were three Americans who were featured. So number nine on that list was Bill Gates, who, when the article was published back in 2015, was the richest man in the world, and they estimated his wealth at $78.9 billion dollars. Number seven on the list was John D. Rockefeller, who, after adjusting for inflation, was worth $341 billion in, in 2015 dollars. And coming in just ahead of Rockefeller, number six was, I'll give you a second, just think in your head, richest American of all time according to this list. It was Andrew Carnegie. This is what Time said about his wealth, that Rockefeller gets all the press, but Andrew Carnegie may, may be the richest American of all time. The Scottish immigrant sold his company, U.S. Steel, to J.P. Morgan for $480 million in 1901. That sum equates to slightly over 2.1% of the entire U.S. GDP at the time, giving Carnegie economic power equivalent to $372 billion dollars in 2014. So obviously, that's, like, that's an unfathomable amount of money. But it becomes even more unfathomable, even more staggering when you consider where Carnegie started. Carnegie was born to a poor family in Scotland. When he was 13, his family immigrated to the United States and seeking to provide help for his family as they were a poor immigrant family, Carnegie started working at the age of 13, and he got a job in a cotton mill. He was a bobbin boy. So his job was just to change spools of thread constantly, nonstop, 12 hours a day, six days a week. And for working 12 hours a day, six days a week, he earned $1.20 per week. Now, just in case you're thinking, that sounds bad, but you know, inflation. Right? So adjusted for inflation, that's $41 a week in today's money. Right? So 12 hours a day, six days a week, in a factory for $41 a week, adjusted for inflation. So eventually, Carnegie was offered a job by a bobbin manufacturer. So instead of changing bobbins, he then worked to produce them and as part of that job change, he got the massive raise to $2 a week. 
or $68 a week adjusted for inflation. Then he eventually got a job as a telegraph messenger for $2.50 a week. And then he's offered a job as a telegraph operator at Pennsylvania Railroad where he made $4 a week. Now that's that railroad company where he impressed his bosses enough that he was eventually promoted to superintendent of the Western Division of the railroad company. And with that role, he was given a salary of $1,500 per year or $30 a week. So he went from $1.20 a week to $2 a week to $2.50 a week to $4 a week then to $30 a week. Right? So you can see Carnegie climbing the ladder of career success. But obviously you don't go from $30 a week to $372 billion just by working 9 to 5. His, his career really took off when he used his connections in the railroad company he's working at to to create a steel company. He used revolutionary techniques to make steel that worked for railroads much more cheaply. And he used that steel-making process to grow a massive empire and accumulate his massive wealth. So Carnegie's also often held up as kind of the classic example of a rags-to-riches story, of, of the American dream, of someone climbing the socioeconomic ladder And while our stories, like yours and mine, may not be quite as dramatic as Carnegie's, like many of us, probably all of us in some way, are, are seeking to climb ladders of our own. Like whether we're seeking the next promotion at work, or we're seeking to be better at a hobby, or we're, we're seeking more influence in a, a club we belong to, we're seeking a bigger house, or a nicer car, or we're seeking more followers on social media, whatever it is, like we're all trying to climb some ladder. A couple of weeks ago, I sent in my registration for the, the three-leg three pickleball tournament. That's in my third year playing in that tournament. And as part of the registration, you have to rate yourself on a scale from basically one to five. And they use those ratings to make sure you're playing against similarly skilled players in the tournament. And so two years ago, when I registered for the first time, I rated myself at 3.5. And then last year, I rated myself at 4.0. And then this year, I rated myself at 4.2. And it's satisfying right, to, to feel myself getting better and better and climbing that ratings ladder. Right? Maybe I'm deluded and that's going to come back and bite me, but like, it's, it's good to like, feel like I'm getting better at this thing, climbing that ladder. We all have some kind of ladder we're trying to climb. But in today's passage in Philippians, we see Jesus do the exact opposite. Instead of climbing up a ladder, Paul recounts how Jesus climbed down a ladder to come and be with us. And what I hope we see this morning is that in climbing down that ladder, Jesus is our means and our motivation and our model for holy living. Jesus is the means and the motivation and the model for how we ought to live our life. What I hope we see this morning is that Jesus' life is the answer to kind of three questions. How, why, and what? Like, how can I overcome my selfishness? 
how can I overcome my sinfulness to live a holy, God-honoring life? And the answer Paul gives us is through the power of Jesus. Like why? Like why should I care about living a holy, morally upright, God-honoring life? And Paul's answer is because of what Jesus did for you. And then what? Like what does living a holy, God-honoring, morally upright life look like anyway? And Paul's answer is that it looks like Jesus' life. That's what I want to see this morning. So to see, let's read our passage together. Starting in Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Paul writes this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. Jesus, the very nature of God, he made himself nothing. He, he climbed down an infinitely long ladder from almighty, all-powerful, glorious God to nothing, Paul says. He took on the Nature of a servant. God became man. He made himself nothing. That's already coming down the ladder, but Jesus didn't stop there. He went even further down the ladder, continuing in verse 8. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't just climb down a ladder to come and live among us, but he climbed down far enough to die the most shameful, disgraceful, humiliating death possible. That trip down the ladder wasn't a one-way trip. Paul continues, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So after coming down among us, God raised Jesus back up that ladder to the heights, to all glory, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in many ways, this passage is the heart, the center, the, the core of the book of Philippians. Nothing else Paul says in this book makes much sense unless Paul has a compelling vision of who Jesus is and what he has done. Way back in chapter 1, we saw how Paul had rivals who were preaching Christ in order to make life hard for Paul. You might think Paul would be upset about that or be defensive about that, but Paul instead says, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. So why, then the question is, like, why is Christ being preached so important to Paul that he is willing to rejoice even if it happens at his own expense? 
And the answer is because he knew this Jesus that we read about in this passage. He knew who Jesus was, and he was blown away by that Jesus. Another time he says, I eagerly expect and hope that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Why is Paul hoping that Christ will be exalted through him, even if it means his death? Because he understands that Christ is wholly worthy of exaltation, no matter the cost. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Another place he says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Like Paul said that if he lives, his whole life is dedicated to doing the will of Christ, bringing glory to Christ. And if he dies, it will be gain for him because he will get to go and be with Christ, which he says is better by far. What is so compelling about Christ that Paul's willing to say to live with Christ and to die is gain? The answer is this passage. This passage is one of the clearest, most beautiful pictures of who Jesus is and what he has done in the entire Bible. And it is knowing and believing and loving this Christ that enables Paul to make those big statements and then to live them out. The same thing is true for us. Having a true and compelling and beautiful picture of who Jesus is and what he has done. It's our means and our motivation and our model for holy living. Christianity is not, first and foremost, about believing a set of cold, hard facts about Jesus. About knowing and loving Jesus because of who he is and what he has done. And this passage extol that. And my hope in the rest of our time this morning is just to walk through this passage and see how Jesus is each of those three M's. How he is the means for our holy living. And how he, how he is the, the motivation for our holy living. And how he is the model for our holy living. In the book of First Peter, Peter quotes the book of Leviticus when he says, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. Right? So that's our call. Right? To be holy in all that we do. And the only way we can do that is through the, the power and the work and the example of Jesus. That's what Paul wants us to see here in this passage. He wants to give us a compelling, beautiful picture of Jesus so we can be holy as He is holy. The first thing we see here in this passage is that Jesus is the means by which we can live a holy life. It's a, you know, a little bit of explaining to understand what I mean by, by that idea. Right, but I think it's important. So just hang with me for a minute. So let me start by telling you what I mean, and then I'll tell you how I get it from this passage in particular. When I say that Jesus is the means by which we can live a holy life, what I mean is that part of what Jesus accomplished when he came to earth, when he died on the cross in our place, when he was raised from the dead, and specifically when he then sent his Holy Spirit to be with us, 
part of what all that accomplished is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus made it possible for us to live the life that God has called us to live. Jesus made it possible. He is the means by which we can live holy lives. The flip side of that then, of course, is that apart from Jesus, it's impossible to live holy lives. And Paul makes that inability clear throughout his letters. He makes it clear that our, our self-effort, our own willpower will never be enough to live holy lives. We need the help of Christ. So in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul says that before we believe in Jesus, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. And dead people can't will themselves to become alive. In Romans 3, Paul quotes Isaiah and he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. Left to our own devices, left to our own selfish desires, we're incapable of living the life that God has called us to live. We will not seek God. We will not be righteous. We are incapable on our own of living holy, godly, morally upright lives. Now, that's not a popular message in, in our culture, in our world. Right? Often you hear that people are inherently good, and sure, some people have a few rough edges here and there, but those rough edges are a product of circumstance. But I think if you examine your heart closely, you know that's not true. There's a, there's a desire to act selfishly and sinfully that feels hardwired into me. Unless my own self-effort, I cannot change that in my own power. The only way our hearts can be changed is through Jesus and His sending of the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. Jesus is the means by which we can live a holy life. Now the question is, how do I, how do I get that from, from this passage in particular? And the answer is found in verse 5, but it takes a little bit of, of explaining. Right? So I'm going to get a little bit technical for just a couple minutes here, for those of you who like that sort of thing. Right? So if that's not your thing, you can just kind of, you can zone out for like three minutes, but just make sure you come back. But just it's kind of the technical kind of grammar nerd with me for a moment here. So in verse 5 in the NIV, which we read from this morning, verse 5 says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. But Paul's Greek sentence here that this is translated from, it's kind of hard to translate because Paul omits a verb and he expects the reader to provide that verb from context. And Paul literally, if you're going to translate it word for word, Paul literally says this. Have this attitude among yourselves which also in Christ Jesus. Now that's pretty common in Greek to omit a verb like that. But in this case it's confusing because there are two possibilities. Possibility one is that Paul expected his readers to, to provide provide a form of like a being verb, a to-be verb. It's usually one of the default options in a situation like this. And that's what the NIV does. They put was in the blank. 
so that it would be something like, have this attitude among yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Right? So they're holding up Jesus as a model for how to act. Right? So they, they clean up the language a little bit, and they, the NIV just says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Right? Hold up Jesus' life as a model to be emulated. And for sure, Jesus' life is a model to be emulated. And we'll get to that at the end of the sermon. But the other option, when a verb is omitted, is to provide the most recently used verb, which in this case is a form of have. So other translations do this. And so you get something like, have this attitude among yourselves, which you also have in Christ Jesus. So one example is the ESV, which translates this verse. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus. And in this case, I think the ESV got it right. Now, this is the better translation. Right? So I'm going to use this as kind of where I draw this from. And so if you zoned out, you can come back now. I'm going to jump back into the less technical parts. Right? So I think it's important that we see like, that Paul is not saying, like, look, what a great example you have in Jesus. Now, like, you go out and try really hard in your own self-effort to live like Jesus. Paul's not saying that. No, he's saying, like, if you have repented of your sins, if you have trusted in Jesus for, for the forgiveness of your sins, if you have then received the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is at work in you to give you the mind of Christ, it is yours in Christ Jesus. Because you have that mind, then you have all you need to live the way you're called to live. You have all the resources at your disposal. Now it's your job to put them into practice, to put them to work. But you have what you need, whereas before you trusted Jesus, you didn't even have what you need. The attitude, the, the mindset that you need to live a holy, God-honoring life is yours in Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, the mindset is yours. Jesus first, who is the means. It's only when we trust Jesus that it becomes possible. Dennis Johnson, who I've quoted in your bulletin if you want to read it more closely, he says this, Unbreakable cords of grace bind believers to our Savior so tightly that Christ conveys his mindset to us through his Holy Spirit. When Christ Jesus left the bliss of heaven for the miseries of earth for you, his purpose was not only to rescue you from your sins, just deserts, though it was that. It was not only to set you an example of humility, though it was that. It was also to reconfigure the inclinations of your heart so that his mindset, that is his joy in selflessly serving others, is becoming your mindset. Jesus came to reconfigure the inclinations of your heart so that his mindset becomes your mindset. But apart from Jesus, it is not possible. Jesus is the means by which it takes place. But of course, just making something possible is, is not enough. There's lots of things that it's 
possible for me to do that I don't do. There are many things that I have the means to do that I don't do, right? Because I don't have the motivation. Just having the means to do something isn't enough. Like if we're actually going to do it, we need to have the motivation to do it. And in painting this, this beautiful picture of Jesus in this, path, in this passage, Paul is holding up not only Christ as the means by which we live a holy life, but also the motivation to live a holy life. We need both the means and the motivation. And we all have something that, that serves our primary motivation for how we, we live our life. We have something that like, kind of forms the lens through which we filter our decisions. Maybe for some people it's, like, does this action earn me the applause of man? Does it please people around me? Does it make people happy? And that's the primary motivation. For others, maybe it's, like, does this action, does this decision help me get more money or accumulate more stuff? Or maybe it's, will this action, this decision bring me immediate, even if it's fleeting, happiness? Or does this make me more secure? Or does this do good for my family? We're all motivated by something. And for Paul, his motivation is Christ. For Paul, it is seeing Christ exalted and Christ glorified that served as the ultimate motivation for him. That's what he means when he says, to live is Christ. Christ is Paul's motivation. And this passage is a picture of why. Just listen to these words again. Paul, describing Jesus, says, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death, on a cross. And if those words are true, then surely there's nothing better to give our life for. But it's so easy to, to gloss over those words or to think we know them or to have heard them so many times they lose their weight. So I just want to take a few minutes right now to slowly read through those words. Give us a few moments to meditate on them and just offer a few comments on each verse. So starting in verse 6. Who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Jesus is in very nature God. He is fully, totally, completely God. He shared a divine nature with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is God. Yet, He 
did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. There's that famous quote from Lord Acton where he says, Power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And generally speaking, that's an accurate observation of the human condition. The more power people have, the more likely they are to use it for their own gain, for their own advantage. But not Jesus. He had absolute power as God. And yet, he did not consider equality with God as something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, continuing in verse 7, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, he made himself nothing. He is God and he makes himself nothing. He becomes fully human. With all our frailties. He left the glories of heaven. He came and lived among us. Came like us in every way, yet without sin. But he didn't even stop there. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself not just by dying, but by dying the most painful, humiliating death possible. All-powerful God left the glories of heaven and humbled himself and died on a cross. And it was the only way for you and I and all us sinful humans to have a hope of being made right with God. Our sin had broken our fellowship with God. It had separated us from God. Our sin deserved eternal punishment in hell. And we are, as we said earlier, incapable of earning our way or forfeiting our way or willing our way back into God's favor. We're incapable of being good enough on our own power. Our only hope that if God left the glories of heaven, came and lived among us and humbled himself to the point of death, even on a cross. Jesus came for us when we had done nothing to deserve it. While we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. That's true. That's not a person worth giving our lives for, worth living for, worth being motivated to bring glory to. Then I don't know what is. If these words that Paul speaks about Christ are true, then he is worth following wherever he calls us. 
Paul concludes by saying, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. There is coming a day when every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord coming a day when everyone will acknowledge that the life that Jesus called us to is the best way to live. By following Him now, we have the, the privilege of participating in that life now. Of, of bending the knee when it's our own choice, not under compulsion later. We do that. We have the sure confidence that when that day comes, we will reign with Christ. In another of his letters, Paul says, here is a trustworthy saying, if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Here's my encouragement. Don't let this picture of Jesus grow stale. Many of us have been coming to church hearing about Jesus for a long time. And it's easy to lose sight of how magnificent and glorious and beautiful this picture of Jesus is. To lose sight of what an amazing Savior we serve and have the joy of following. Don't let this picture of Christ grows stale. Meditate on it. Let all that Jesus has done for you motivate you to live the life that He has called you to live. The life He called you to live is not burdensome. It's not just a bunch of hoops to jump through to prove your devotion. It is the life you were made to live. Paul will later say in this letter that I have learned to be content in all circumstances. And Paul was in some pretty bad circumstances that he was content because he had this picture of Jesus. He could be content because he knew this Jesus. He loved this Jesus. Let that be true for each of us. Where we meditate on who Jesus is all that He has done for us, giving up the glories of heaven, coming to be among us, dying for us. Would that motivate us to live a life that brings Him honor and glory? But Jesus is the means of our living a holy life. He is our motivation for living a holy life. But He's also our model for living a holy life. This passage comes immediately after Paul had commanded the Philippians a couple verses earlier to make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one in spirit and one mind. He says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. 
rather in humility value others above yourself, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. But Paul is calling the Philippians to selfless, humble living. And now he's holding up Jesus as the ultimate picture of what that humble, selfless living looks like. Jesus did not consider himself better than others. He, he valued us over his own well-being. He did not look to his own interest. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, all for the good of others. That's the kind of life we are called to live. Gordon Fee in that other quote in your bulletin says, the ultimate paradigm of a genuinely Christian mindset is Christ himself, who is the premier manifestation of the character of God, which God is trying to reproduce in his people so that they might also thereby be truly human. Jesus is our model. If we truly believe Christ, let us display the character of Christ in our own lives. Let us not be obsessed with climbing whatever ladder we're trying to climb, but let us be willing to climb down the ladder for the good of others. Would we be willing to make ourselves nothing, lower ourselves down for the good of others the way Christ was willing to? In humility, would we value others above ourselves the way Jesus valued us above himself? Would we, like Jesus, become obedient even to death? Would we remember all that Christ has done for us? There's no more tangible reminder of what Christ did for us than in taking communion. In communion, we remember that, that Christ the God of the universe came down. He took on flesh. He had a real physical body. He became fully human. And he had a body that could be broken and he had blood that could be poured out on the cross. And it can mean we remember that Christ was willing to come down the ladder to die for us, to have his body broken. So we take communion to remember remind ourselves that Jesus did that for us. So in just a minute, I will invite you to come forward, and here's how we do communion here. I'll invite you to come forward up either of the side aisles. Grab a, grab a cup, grab a, a wafer, then make your way back to your seat. The wicker baskets contain gluten-free almonds if you need that. When you get back to your seat, we will partake together. But before we do this, let's pray. Father, we again thank you. We praise you for Jesus. Jesus, we are so thankful that you left the glory of heaven. You made yourself nothing. You 
came and you lived among us. You died on the cross for us by believing in you. Our sins could be forgiven and we could have eternal life. Thank you that you died for us. In Jesus' name, amen. One more thing, if you would rather have the community element brought to you rather than come forward, because it's hard for you to go forward, you can raise your hand and Pastor Ian in the back will, will walk around and he will bring you the elements. But I invite you to come up either side aisle Grab a cup, grab a wafer, return to your seat, and in a few minutes we will partake together.
Jesus on the night he was betrayed. He had given thanks. He broke bread. He said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Partake. saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me be our motto, would Christ be our motivation, even as we trust that he is our means. Christ on Jesus' name, amen. As you go from here this morning, as you go remembering and reflecting on all that Jesus has done and who Jesus is, would it motivate you, would it cause you to live more like him for the glory of God. You are dismissed. Same thing.
school 